Hey everyone, before we get started on this week's podcast, I just wanted to apologize for the audio quality. I was not able to record in the place that I normally record, but hopefully next week things will be back to normal. Enjoy the show. What about it, pro wrestling fans, and welcome back to What About Wrestling. I'm your host, Dylan Roberts. We got an exciting episode for you this week. I want to remind you all before we get started here to follow the show on TikTok. It's What About Wrestling on there. Follow all the socials. They're really easy to find. It's just What About Wrestling on pretty much everything. If you're listening to this, you're probably already on Spotify or Apple Podcast or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. But I want to ask you guys to continue to support me. Follow, subscribe, download, whatever you think that you need to do. It's all appreciated. I do this podcast for free, and I hope to continue to do it. But it's going to take a little support from you guys to grow this community that I'm hoping to grow. And yeah, I just want to see it grow as big as it can and enjoy this ride a little bit. But with that being said, let's go ahead and get into the show this week. This week, we're going to be covering the week in wrestling, as we always do, as well as the high spot this week is celebrities in wrestling. A lot of controversy around that, so let's get into that later in the show. And finally, the main event, we're going to be doing a retrospective of The Undertaker's WrestleMania streak, something that means a lot to a lot of wrestling fans, WWE fans specifically. The Undertaker's streak was a lot of people's childhood, including mine, so I'm excited to dive into that. But with all of that being said, let's buckle up and enjoy the show. This week in the 5-Minute Warning, we're going to start with the All Elite Wrestling's Revolution pay-per-view that took place this past Sunday. The show started hot with Ricky Starks defeating Chris Jericho. I think that Chris Jericho needs to move away from doing the Judas effect. I just think that his execution of the move is about as bad as it can be, so why not just get away from it? I don't think it's great. Jericho's a legend. He's one of the greatest of all time. The move does not do him any favors. Let's just get away from it completely. But during the match, JR mentioned a few times that Ricky Starks is a main eventer. But my point to that is, what do you have to do to get him into the main event scene? I would like to see that going forward. Spoiler alert for later in the show, we're covering Dynamite for this week. And we found out who his next opponent's going to be. And it's not an AEW main eventer. So I'm excited to see what Ricky Starks does. But I would like to see his growth go farther upwards towards the main event scene. But I'm glad that Ricky got the win here. It was a big win for him over a legend, like I said. So good for him. The next match was Jungle Boy Jack Perry defeating Christian Cage in a final burial match. I don't ever remember it being announced that it was going to be a final burial match. Nor did most of the people that I've seen on social media that night. But that's cool with me. I just wish they would announce that that kind of stuff before the show actually starts, which they may have. They may have announced it on Rampage. I don't know. I don't watch Rampage hardly ever. So, or at least I haven't in at least the last year. The match was okay. The concerto spot was incredible to see. The chair bent. It was a little bit, I guess it weakened itself into Christian's head. It was very, it was a very well executed spot that I guess kind of sort of went wrong, but in all reality added to the match. Christian seemed to be okay. So it was great. But like I said, the match itself was okay. I'm, I'm glad that this rivalry concluded the way that it did. I'm ready for both of them to go do their own things. And I thought that it was a good send off from the rivalry for both of them. The next match was House of Black defeating the Elite to win the Trios Championship. This match for me was a very Young Bucks style match for the most part. It had a lot of high spots. But Kenny Omega, Buddy Matthews, and Malachi Black are all three just such great workers. I think they all three are, have the ability to tell great stories. They sell really well. So I thought that they kind of were the glue that held this match together. But overall, I was very pleased with the match. I got the winner that I was hoping for, and another kind of foreshadowing here, it looks as if these three or these six people are going to continue doing their thing as well as adding in a few others. So I thought it was really cool. I thought the match was pretty good, so I was very happy with that. In the next match, Jamie Hayter retains over Soraya and Ruby Soho. Ruby Soho in the match done a dive into the crowd where the security guard 
had to hold her hand while she stood up on the barricade until she jumped. I'm, I don't have any problems with a spot like that. I have a problem with the the guard having to hold her hand. If someone has to hold your hand for you to do a move, just skip it. We would have never known that it was part of the match. We would have never known that. That's the thing Jericho said a few weeks ago about people. He hates the word botch. And I try to stay away from the word botch, too, because I think it's very disrespectful. But botches are, for the most part, avoidable. Because if we don't know, like if she was to stand up on that barricade and just fall down, we wouldn't have known. But with her having to have the guard hold her hand as she gets up there and then until she jumps, well, that's obvious. We can see that. We do know. And Ruby Soho is a great worker. She doesn't need to do things like that and then make herself just look less than by having the guard there to hold her hand. It was a sticking point for me. Obviously, I'm talking on and on about this one spot. But overall, I thought that the match was okay. I thought they'd done a pretty good job. But after the match, Ruby Soho turns on Jamie Hayter and Britt Baker. So we got a lot going forward. In the next match, Adam or Hangman Adam Page defeated John Moxley via hanging him, I guess you would call it, choke out. I don't know. He hung him over the top rope with a chain. This match was just brutal. I, I said in last week's podcast that it was going to be extremely violent and it's, you know, keep your kids out of the room or whatever I said. But this was actually way more violent than even I was expecting. It was something that I did not enjoy how violent it got. Now, don't get me wrong, I thought it was a pretty good match, but it was too much for me. I just think that the stabbing stabbing Hangman in the head with a fork spot is so violent. Like, I just feel like you've got to have some kind of weird fetish or something for something like that to happen. I don't know. It's just very odd. I didn't enjoy that spot. The whole rest of the match was, it was too violent for me, but it was acceptable, I think. I'm just not really, I'm into hardcore matches. You know, I've said on the podcast, I do enjoy some blood and wrestling whenever it's necessary, but it was just a little bit too much. But at the same time, I think that if you're a diehard John Moxley fan, you probably watched that match and it was a lot for you as well, but you probably really enjoyed it. So that's where it's at with that match. Glad that Hangman got the win there. Excited to see where he goes next, as, you know, as well as everybody on this list. But yeah, glad Hangman got the win there. The Guns defeated Danhausen. Orange Cassidy, Jeff Jarrett, Jay Lethal, and the Acclaimed for the tag titles in the next match. The match just kind of was what it was. It was a good pace. There was a lot of people flying around. I just was hoping for the Acclaimed to get their win back, which I guess if you've listened to the podcast, you know I'm not real big on the Acclaimed, but I think that they are necessary to have the tag titles in their hands. But all that changed after the match was over with because FTR returned, the best tag team in the world today, FTR. I was so excited to see them back. I'm a big fan of FTR, so we're going to see what's happening with them going forward. Foreshadowing the Dynamite, they called out the guns and said that they're going to take what they want from them, to hit them where it hurts. So I want them to get the tag titles back. I think that they deserve the tag titles, but I don't want them to just disappear again when they get the tag titles. I want to see them defending them. I don't know, every week or every other week on Dynamite for the next few months. That's what I want. I want to see them running roughshod on AEW's tag team division. In the next match, MJF defeated Brian Danielson. Man, this match was phenomenal. 10 out of 10. Couldn't have gotten any better. I texted a friend of mine, or actually I texted him and then we got on the phone and talked about it, about this match. I'm a diehard Shawn Michaels fan. I have probably 30 pieces of memorabilia around my house from the Iron Man match at WrestleMania 12. It's one of my favorite matches of all time. I think that it's a masterpiece. But this Iron Man match between MJF and Brian Danielson, I think could possibly be the greatest Iron Man match of all time. I don't want to sound like a prisoner at the moment, and I may change my mind on that. But to me right now, if there's a 1A and a 1B, It's the WrestleMania 12 match and this Revolution match. MJF's storytelling throughout the match was phenomenal. The first 15 to maybe 20 minutes felt very indie wrestling-like. There was a lot of independent wrestling spots in it. They even done the back and forth, back and forth, and then they both kip up into a handshake deal that a lot of independent wrestlers love to use. It's overused on the independent scene. Brian didn't accept the handshake, and then the match took off again. MJF's heel work during this match was incredible. The pacing of this match, I thought, was the real high spot of it. Something that's going to go unnoticed, but I think needs to be talked about. 
instead of working a ton of rest holds, MJF found this nuance in the system to just go outside and get some water. I thought that was really cool because you're wrestling for over an hour. You're going to need some breaks. Like nobody can go a million miles an hour for an hour. And MJF's answer to that was to let his heel self do heel things, go outside and get some water. There's a spot that pissed a lot of people off in this match where one time, whenever he got out of the ring, he went into the crowd. He saw a woman standing there. He took what I thought at first was water, but the reports online are that it was tequila or vodka or some kind of liquor. He took the water out of her hands, threw it on her kid, and then proceeded to get back in the ring. Now, here's the thing about that spot. At first, I was super excited for it. Even though I found out the kid was not a plant, I was still very excited for it because you're throwing water on a kid. He's going to be pissed about it for a second. Let them give him some free merch and then everything's okay. He'll probably think it's cool 10 years from now. Like, oh, I remember this one time that MJF threw water on me and it was the funniest thing and it pissed me off so much at the time. But now looking back on it, it's cool. Or at least that's how I think that I would view it. But whenever the reports came out that it was alcohol, things kind of changed a little bit. That's pretty unacceptable. I am a very big fan of MJF being an actual heel. He's not like the cool heel. He tries to do things that actually make you want to hate him. He doesn't want anybody to like him. He doesn't want to be the smart Mark's favorite wrestler, even though he is definitely in my top five. He doesn't want that. He wants you to hate him. He wants to have that Conor McGregor appeal. He wants you to buy pay-per-views to watch him lose. So part of me loves it. Part of me hates it. Me having three children of my own, I do think that it would have pissed me off really bad if I would have had a beer in my hand or something like that, and then he threw it on a kid. So I guess that's my final stance on that spot is wrong. It's wrong and shouldn't happen again. So hopefully it doesn't do something like that again. But the match continued. They worked a great pace, like I said, a thousand times already. The When they started getting falls, that's where the match kind of picked up a little bit. Brian Danielson gets a, gets a fall. And then the next fall, NJF hits him with a low blow, which give, gives Brian Danielson two falls. It's two to zero. But the, the unique thing they done in this match was there was no time in between falls. So MJF hits him with a low blow. It's 2-0. And then he pins him. It's 2-1. And then he pins him again immediately after. It's 2-2. I, again, just great storytelling. MJF was a full heel in that moment. He found a nuance in the system, took advantage of it. 2-2. They go 3-3. The match continues to go. It comes to an end at the hour mark. And then they pull the classic WrestleMania 12 spot, a good callback. Tony Schiavone starts getting word on his headset from somebody. He walks to the ring, says the match has to continue. In the meantime, they're supplying or trying to supply Daniel, uh, Brian Danielson with oxygen. MJF's taking the oxygen in the ring with the oxygen canisters. They restart the match. MJF works a few holds. They go back and forth. He tries to go for the diamond ring. Danielson ducks it. MJF ends up outside. Whenever he went outside, he threw the ring though and the ref saw it. Well, that got the ref's attention straight away. As he's outside, and this is something I'll say about AEW, their camera work, I constantly hate on it so much because the production value, the possibility of great production is there. I feel like they have the money to have great production and they just don't sometimes as far as their camera work is concerned. In this moment, the camera work was perfect. The camera's shooting up from down below where MJF is. He's sitting right outside the ring. He's got the oxygen canister in his hand. As soon as Brian Danielson sticks his head out, MJF hits him with the canister. They get in the ring. He puts on the LaBelle lock. Danielson taps. MJF wins. I thought it was, honestly, even though he's had several of them, I could I would consider this a career-defining match for MJF so far in his career. Again, I can't say enough good things about it. If you have a chance to go back and watch one match from the pay-per-view, it's absolutely going to be this one. This is going to be, I will say, there's no way it doesn't make it into the top two or three matches for match of the year. And I know it's super early already, but it's it's fantastic. I can't say enough good things about it. Moving on to Raw. The show started with Kevin Owens defeating Solo Sokoa via disqualification after Jimmy Uso interfered. After the match, Jimmy and Solo continued to uh, continue the attack on Kevin Owens. But Sami Zayn comes in for the save, and then Sami offers Owens a handshake, and Owens leaves into the crowd, just leaving him hanging. After that, Bobby Lashley addressed Uncle Howdy, attacking him on SmackDown, and says that Bray Wyatt's not a man. This is not building steam quickly enough for me. I'm a big fan of both of these guys. I defended Bray Wyatt last week on the podcast. 
I need more. I need it to start moving along quick. We only have a few weeks left until WrestleMania. Let's get things rolling on this. Next, Chelsea Green and Carmella decide they share some common ground in hating Adam Page. So Chelsea walks to the ring with Carmella with, for her match with Bianca Belair. Belair gets the win, and then Green and Carmella attack her. Oscar comes in for the save, spitting blue mist on Chelsea, in Chelsea Green's eyes. And Oscar and Belair have another stare down. It's getting stagnant, really, really stagnant for me. I was just talking about how the build was not doing well enough for me. Well, it's getting even worse. Again, I've stated several times, these two, when they meet in the ring at WrestleMania, the match is going to be great. But with that being said, this isn't just pro wrestling. I don't want to just see a wrestling match. I want some stories told. I want to have some interest in the match. We can't just have stare downs every week. Bianca Belair needs to come out and cut phenomenal promos for the next few weeks to get me interested in this match. Asuka doesn't have that ability. Asuka can't cut great promos because Asuka doesn't speak great English. So, in order for that to happen, it's all on Bianca Belair's shoulders. So, give me something. Give me anything to make me care about this match. After that, backstage, Sami Zayn approaches Kevin Owens. Sami says the bloodline is too much for Owens himself or anyone. He's not trying to make things okay, referring to their past, says they don't need to be best friends anymore, but they have the same objective and says that neither one of them can do it alone and they need to do it together. Owens says he doesn't want to do it with Sami, and then Owens says maybe Sami should go back to Roman Reigns and just apologize, stroke his ego, and Reigns will forgive him. Owen says he doesn't care what Sammy does and tells Sammy to leave him out of it. I thought it was a good I thought it was a good segment. I think that they're continuing to build on this. It's the slow roll on this, but there's enough story told already. That's the difference between the last two matches that I'm talking about. The Bel Air and Oscar thing, it's slow rolling. The Bray Wyatt thing, it's slow rolling. But there's no already pre-made interest in that match. With the women, there's at least a title on the line. But I need I need more interest built. With the Owens and Zayn thing, there's already a huge amount of interest built from the past few months. This, I would say, I guess this part of the story is just now starting. But from the last story, you already have some background information. So I just I just hope they keep it rolling with the Zayn and Owens thing. And I hope the other two feuds start picking up pretty quickly. Next was the promo between Logan Paul and Seth Rollins. Paul does phenomenal here. We'll get into it in the celebrities thing, but Logan Paul has just been crushing it since he came to the WWE. He explains that everything that he's accomplished in just a year, it took Rollins 20 to accomplish. Then Rollins rebuttals and says the reason that he and the fans hate Paul is because he's a coward, a troll, and a human dumpster fire, and no one wants to be around him. Rollins challenges Paul to a fight, but Paul says he doesn't fight for free, and maybe he would fight Rollins if the money was right and the stage was bigger as he looks at the WrestleMania sign. Then the Miz pipes up and says he could get them a match together at WrestleMania. And Rollins says if he can get them a match at Mania to go do it and slings him out of the ring. A brawl breaks out between Rollins and Paul and Paul knocks Rollins out, which I thought was a great touch. He ends the segment by saying bye-bye, bitch, to Seth. A great callback again. I thought the segment was as perfect as it could be. I think that they're building this match well. And I think that there is a ginormous possibility that this is the best match from WrestleMania weekend. So we'll, we will definitely see on that. But I think Logan Paul's entering ability is top tier for where he's at in his stage in WWE. And then y'all know how big of a Seth Rollins fan I am. So we'll see what happens. The next match, Omos defeats Dolph Ziggler. And then MVP cuts a promo calling out Brock. After that, the Maximum Male Models try to record, uh, recruit Baron Corbin to eliminate Chad Gable. Johnny Gargano defeats Finn Balor. In the match, Edge's music hits, and he pushes Balor off the top turnbuckle while the ref wasn't looking, costing Balor the match. Johnny Gargano, and I have just seen this. I need to look back at some of his old matches. I've never noticed it because he's such a white meat babyface. But Johnny Gargano wrestles like a heel. I've never caught that. And it may have just been this week. I don't know. Like I said, I need to look back. But he wrestles like a heel. At one point in the match, he offers Finn a handshake and then kicks him in the gut. At a different point in the match, he is the ref's asking him to break a hold. He's giving him a five count. He's not breaking the hold. These are very heelish things to do. It reminds me of Hogan whenever he pulled Sid over the top rope at WrestleMania, or no, 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 at Royal Rumble 1992. 
it's like you're the baby face and Johnny Gargano is as baby face as a baby face can get. He is a bona fide good guy. You can't, I don't think he needs to be doing stuff like that. All in all, the match was okay, but these are two of the best workers in all of professional wrestling, not just in WWE. These are two of the best workers in all of professional wrestling. I wanted more out of it. I know it was just a throwaway match in the middle of Raw, but I wanted so much more out of that match when I seen that it was coming up. In the next segment, Cena comes out and there's a lot of emotion going on. He's almost crying. It was a great moment for me growing up and John Cena being my absolute hero. I thought it was awesome. It took me back to my childhood a little bit there. But when he gets in the ring, he's immediately interrupted by Austin Theory. This promo proved why John Cena is one of the best of all time on the mic. He tore Austin Theory up a little bit too much, in my opinion, but he's he's great, man. He this this all starts this week, and I'm already all in on the match. Could it be because I'm just a big John Cena fan? Could it be because I'm a big Austin Theory fan? I don't know. But I would like to think that this promo had virtually everything to do with that because I thought they both done really, really well. Theory says that he has a gift for John Cena. And the gift is a match for the U.S. title at WrestleMania. John Cena immediately says no. He goes on to say that Theory has no heart or substance and he's a pair of tights away from being a jabroni. He also throws in a line about having to pipe in crowd noise for Austin Theory's matches, which I thought was uh, bold, I guess, to say the least. It's a really, you know, peek behind the curtain, inside baseball, as Conrad Thompson likes to say. I thought it was... I mean, it was cool. I thought it, you know, but that was one of those things. It's like, is this over the line? Is this too much? Are you burying Austin Theory in this moment? But he has a little bit more roasting for Austin Theory. And then Cena asks the fans if he should accept or not. And of course, the fans say yes. And now we're off to the races. The segment ends by John Cena introducing Cody Rhodes. And then they have a moment on stage. And after we come back from commercial break, Chad Gable and Baron Corbin are having a match where Chad Gable wins. Then Damage Control and Becky Lynch, Lita, and Trish Stratus are in the ring, and they make the match official to be a three-versus-three tag match at WrestleMania. And the last segment, the main event match, Sami Zayn gets a roll-up on Jimmy Uso. During the match, Jay comes down to the ring, seemingly distracting Jimmy, which I thought was odd. After the match, Jay confronts Jimmy and has a moment with him in the ring. He grabs his shirt. It looks like they're about to make up. And then he just passes by him. He goes to the uh, where Sammy is standing outside the ring. They stand there for a second. He embraces him and tells him that he trusts him and he loves him. They raise the finger, representing some solidarity there. And then after a few seconds, the crowd builds and builds and builds in excitement for them two being together. And Jay super kicks Sammy's head off. It just took one super kick to make this whole thing This whole segment was perfect. I've seen a lot of people online heaping praise on Jey Uso for this segment. He throws Sammy back into the ring. Both of the Usos and Solo Sokoa start a beatdown on Sammy. And then Cody Rhodes' music hits. And they back off and Raw goes off the air. I thought this episode of Raw was as good as it can get, man. WWE is clicking on all cylinders here. Next on Dynamite. Orange Cassidy defeated Jay Lethal to retain the All-Atlantic Championship, which we find out later in the show is getting renamed to the International Championship. After the match, Jeff Jarrett attacks Orange Cassidy from behind and smashes his knee with a guitar. Then the best friends run in for a save. Ricky Starks is out next to cut a promo. He says he's done with Chris Jericho and the Jericho Appreciation Society and asks what's next for him. But the truth is, he's not sure either. Then the Bullet Club music hits, and we're all expecting Jay White, or at least I was. But Juice Robinson appears, which no hate on Juice Robinson. I think he's a great talent. Loved him in NXT. I watched some of his stuff from, from New Japan. Not bad. Not disappointed in him. But when you're expecting somebody else, it does kind of take the air out of the building. But that's, that's probably on me as a fan for expecting somebody else. He appears out of nowhere from behind him and lays him out and lays Ricky Starks out. After that, Ruby Soho cuts what I would consider to probably be the best promo of her career, or at least out of the ones that I've seen. She starts attacking the fans for not appreciating her, Soraya, or Tony Storm. After that, she defeats Sky Blue in a match. They spray paint her up real good. After that, Hangman cuts a promo wrapping up his feud with Jon Moxley. 
Then next, there is a backstage promo that was apparently shot after the Revolution match between MJF and Brian Danielson. It's uh, MJ, MJF. He's constantly referencing old insider phrases and quotes of wrestling from yesteryear, which I think is awesome. I'm such a fan of that. It kind of gives you, it kind of makes you feel smart. You know, it kind of makes you feel like, oh, I got that. I caught that one. Again, it's just another thing that MJF does that I think is awesome. But he starts the promo out by saying, with a tear in my eye, obviously referencing the 1992 Royal Rumble when Ric Flair won and cut his promo. He mentions the reign of his reign of terror beginning, obviously referencing Triple H from the 2000s. So I thought it was a good promo. It wasn't anything crazy special, but the insider references and the callbacks and stuff I thought was cool. FTR cuts a promo with Tony Schiavone in the ring where they talk about how much they miss wrestling and the fans, how bad it hurts to lose three sets of tag titles in about a month. And how about it hurts to lose one of their best friends, Jay Briscoe? They say they're back to hit the guns where it hurts, and they're going to take the tag titles. I thought it was a really good promo. Jay Cargill says she wants Canada's best next week in Winnipeg. Don't know how that's possible because Trish Stratus is obviously going to be wrestling at WrestleMania. Chris Jericho, Sammy Guevara, and Daniel Garcia beat Top Flight and AR Fox. After the match, Angelo Parker says it was the greatest win in Trio's history. The Elite has a problem with that, so they come out, Kenny cuts a promo, and then the House of Black appear on the screen, and they say they all deserve to get humiliated in their hometowns. So they say if, if you want the tag titles, then the lights cut out, and then the lights come back up, and they're on the ramp. Then they say, come get them, and then the lights go out again, and they're gone. thought it was pretty cool. It was a little too back and forth for me. There was a lot going on. It kind of felt like those moments between Money in the Bank matches like right before money in the bank happens where everybody's in the ring they're giving their spiel it was fine i mean i'm not trying to hate on it i just it was a lot and i don't know that you need to involve another trio in this nine dudes flying around the ring especially working the style of the young bucks and that kind of thing it, it might just be too much which it may slow down with more ring. i'm not sure after that tony khan cuts probably the most odd promo i've seen in the last few years there's a group of fans that love Tony Khan, and that's fine with me. He built something that they love, and great. They think he's a great booker. They think he's a great promoter. Whatever. I don't care. That's fine. That's all good with me. But somebody needs to tell him to stay off of TV. He's not good in front of a camera. He's not a good talker. He repeats himself over and over and over again, and not over the course of a whole show. He does it in like three minutes. I counted, and it was about six or seven times that he tells us that Orange Cassidy and Jeff Jarrett will go one-on-one -on -one for the now renamed International Championship. It was it was just so odd. He just looks so uncomfortable in front of a camera. He seems like an introverted guy who's high-strung. So I don't understand why people keep letting him go on camera. Somebody has to get one. Somebody that you know he trusts and that trusts him needs to get to him and just be like, hey, man, you might want to hire an authority figure. I've seen somebody throw out Arn Anderson as an authority figure. So... Maybe Arn Anderson needs to be their authority figure. And I'm not talking, I'm not talking Triple H or Vince McMahon. I'm talking like a Mick Foley type authority character or even like a Tunny or something like that. Like something very old school where they just come out, they announce the matches and they say things that need to be said. They don't have a good guy or bad guy side. They're not a heel or a baby face. They just come out and tell you what you need to hear. They're an authority figure. That's the end of it. After that, Brian Danielson cuts a promo where he says maybe MJF was right and he thinks he needs to go home and be a family man. So it looks like he's probably taking a little time off here. John Moxley and Claudio Castanelli defeat John Silver and Alex Reynolds. After the match, the Blackpool Combat Club attacks Silver and Reynolds. Evil Uno comes for the save, but he gets ambushed too. Hangman Page runs in, but then they all gang up on Hangman as well. And then the referees end up separating them. The final match of the night was a Falls Count Anywhere match between Powerhouse Hobbs and Wardlow, your new TNT champion. I don't know. This match for me was a huge miss. You just had Wardlow become the TNT champion at your pay-per-view. You're finally treating him right. You're finally building him, which looking back on it now, I guess I skipped that match earlier. But him and Samoa Joe had a really good match at Revolution where... They just beat the hell out of each other, and then Wardlow ended up making Samoa Joe pass out via rear naked choke. 
So you built a monster. Warlow feels like a monster once again. And I love Powerhouse Hobbs, probably equal to Wardlow. But at the same time, why do they keep doing this to Wardlow? Why build him up and then immediately chop his legs out from under him over and over and over again? I don't get it. Powerhouse Hobbs beats Wardlow for the TNT Championship. QT Marshall interfered. QT attacked Wardlow with a chair. And then Hobbs and QT dropped Wardlow with a powerbomb on the stage. And then Wardlow can't answer the 10 count. Really odd. Didn't enjoy it. Didn't like it. Cool for Powerhouse Hobbs. Love him, but not the right call in my opinion. I think it sucks. On SmackDown, the show starts with the Usos pulling up and Heyman's waiting at the entrance for them. Jay asks where the Tribal Chief is and Heyman just hugs him. Heyman says the Tribal Chief is really proud of Jay and so is Heyman. Jay tells Heyman to let the Tribal Chief know that he's here and whenever he finds out where he is to let him know and Heyman just walks off. Kayla Braxton appears, and she asks Jay why he turned on Sammy. Jay said he's going to say everything that he needs to say in the ring in the middle of, uh, in the middle of the ring at the end of the night. Jimmy Uso says Kayla needs to be asking questions about Cody Rhodes and why he's putting his nose in the Bloodlines business. Sheamus pins Xavier Woods at the exact same time that Drew McIntyre pins LA Knight to theoretically both become the number one contender for the Intercontinental Championship. After the match, McIntyre and Sheamus are arguing, and the fans start chanting for a triple threat. Next, the WWE announces its first inductee into the 2023 WWE Hall of Fame class, and it's Rey Mysterio. I was not expecting this at all. For one, it seems like Rey's career is not over, which I guess could be wrong. He may be having his final match at WrestleMania this year against Dominic, which is cool. Father-son, last match. I'm all cool with that. But it was just a big shock to me, but totally deserving. You could argue he's one of the most deserving people in the history of the Hall of Fame if you wanted to. He means a lot to a lot of people. He was one of my favorites growing up. Like him and John Cena, Jeff Hardy, Randy Orton, Edge, they were all like way up there for me. So Mysterio definitely deserves to go in. But I don't know, odd timing, wasn't expecting him, but super excited for him. After they air the video package, Ray comes to the ring, but before he can even say a word, the Judgment Day interrupts him. The Judgment Day, which is consisting of Finn Balor, Damian Priest, and Dominic Mysterio here, defeats Legato Del Fantasma. And after the match, Dominic says that he wants to talk to Ray man-to-man in the ring. And if Dominic goes back to doing the same thing of trying to get Ray to hit him. Dominic wants to know why Ray is being inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame and not the Deadbeat Dad Hall of Fame. And then he says he should have been Eddie's son. And then he shoves him. And the crowd pretty much pleads with Ray to hit Dominic. The crowd's all behind it now. Like, yeah, just beat the hell out of your son, dude. He deserves it. As Ray was trying to get out of the ring, Dominic rushes for a cheap shot, but Ray ducks it. And Dominic goes tumbling out of the ring, which I thought was cool. It's kind of a way of getting some physicality without him completely snapping yet. So. I loved it. Seems like that one's slow rolling in the right way. Though. It's it's building. I'm expecting either next week or the next is when Ray finally snaps and then they have the match. So very cool. The next match was a huge surprise for him. The Viking Raiders defeated Ricochet and Braun Strowman. Every time the Viking Raiders are on TV, they put on good matches. It's inevitable. If they're having a match, it's going to be good. This match, I thought, I think the Ricochet and Braun Strowman thing is really odd to me. It's very WWE-esque, though, where they stick two random guys together and call them a tag team. I just don't love it. I'm sure they'll split up at some point, and you'll have, like, the David versus Goliath thing going on, but not for me. But the match was really good, but I think they need to start, or I guess at this point, keep putting more emphasis on real tag teams. Build the Viking Raiders. Build the New Day whenever Kofi gets healthy again. Build the Usos. Build your actual tag teams. Imperium, Legato Del Fantasma, your, or even Chad Gable and Otis if they're going to be a tag team still. Build them up. Make me care about the tag team division again. Make the tag titles important, which they've done a good job with, you know, with the Usos having the titles for as long as they have. But I just want to continue to see it roll. After that, Gunther confronts Adam Pierce and says that he asked for one WrestleMania opponent and not two. And Pierce says that next week, Sheamus and McIntyre are going to go one-on-one to decide who Gunther will face at WrestleMania. The next match, Charlotte defeats Shotzi. After the match, Rhea comes down to confront Charlotte. And Charlotte says, what do you have to say, kid? And Rhea says that she sees the insecurity in Charlotte's eyes. And she's going to take away the one thing that makes Charlotte feel important. And that's the SmackDown Women's Championship. Charlotte says, Rhea may have improved, but so has she. 
And regardless of what people think, she will outwork anyone, male or female, and that she takes the business seriously. Charlotte says some people cheer for that. Some people react negatively, but it's the truth. Charlotte says Rhea may rip apart anyone in her way except for Charlotte. Man, this is what we needed. This is what I wanted from the Asuka and Bianca rivalry. This match, I'm pretty sure I said on last week's podcast, it's not it's not building. It's not building. Give me something. Give me something. And then Charlotte goes out and cuts the for sure best promo of her babyface run so far. And we have a story to tell with this match finally. Thank God. I'm so excited. This match is going to be a great one. Story's good. Has the potential to be a great story as well. They're both very capable workers. I'm excited for it. Next, there was a QR code that flashed on the screen. Very similar to when Bray Wyatt was doing the White Rabbit stuff whenever he re-debuted. It's another hangman puzzle. And it asks, who opened your mind? And the answer was, they did. Next was the Usos in the ring cutting their promo. A very clunky promo from Jay. Not his best work. It was a lot of him saying things and then expecting the crowd to react, which there was a few people reacting in the crowd, and he was expecting it to boil a little bit, everybody be chanting, but the crowd sucked really bad, and that didn't happen. So I kind of felt for Jay here, but he asked the crowd to switch roles with him and ask what they would have done. Jay says he did it because he had to. He didn't want to do it, but he had no choice. And he never had a choice because Jimmy's his blood, his twin, his brother, his family, and Sammy's not. And neither are the fans. <clears throat> Jay says the fans don't know what he's been going through each week. And there's one person to blame, Sammy, because he's selfish. All Sammy had to do was fall in line, but he'll never know anything about that because he's not blood. Jimmy says now they've got rid of the Sammy problem and there's one problem they got to get rid of now. And it's Cody Rhodes. And then Cody comes to the ring. Cody says the Usos mentioned how they answer to Roman Reigns. But he doesn't. He answers to them, the fans. And a Cody chant picks up. Cody says it sounds like they don't want to hear him talk. They want to see a fight. Jimmy warns Cody if he gets any closer, he won't make it to WrestleMania. Sammy suddenly rushes in from behind and attacks Jay. Cody and Sammy are working on the Usos a little bit. They get into a brawl that goes out of the crowd. The funny part of this was Cody trying to take his shirt off and he's wearing like a fitted button up and the cuffs are buttoned on it and he cannot get his hands out. He finally broke one loose and then he couldn't get the second one loose for the longest. He finally does by ripping the shirt off. The cuff was still on his wrist. At the end of the brawl, Cody and Sammy, they stand together, standing tall. So the show went off the air after that. I thought it was pretty good SmackDown. I didn't think it was nearly as good as Raw, but I thought it was pretty good. Not bad at all. It's now time for the high spot of the week. And this week, we're discussing celebrities in wrestling. I think that celebrities in wrestling has a very, it's a very two-sided argument. But I think that the argument, the answer is actually in the middle somewhere. A lot of people hate when wrestlers are, or celebrities are involved in professional wrestling. Some people love it. It's the only time they want to watch wrestling. There's good and bad. I mean, we've seen some bad examples like Snooki and then Jonathan Taylor Thomas. I didn't love. I mean, I'm sure it was okay for the time period, but there are some bad ones. People hated when Machine Gun Kelly came around, but there's also been some really good ones. And as of late, there's been several really good ones. Good ones that put in the time, they love the business, and actually can perform in the ring. The celebrity thing came to my mind this week whenever somebody asked Gunther what he thought about it. And he pretty much said, like, hey, it's good for the business. They bring in new eyeballs and the ones we have around right now care. So what I want to get at here is how long has this been going on? Why should anyone care whenever a Bad Bunny shows up or a Logan Paul or a Pat McAfee or whoever the hell is next in this list of celebrities that have been coming around here recently? Well. The celebrity thing goes back really far, right? The first one that I think is of any importance is when Muhammad Ali had a match against Antonio Inoki. After that, there was the rock and wrestling thing. Actually, after that was the Andy Kaufman thing. Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler took over all of Memphis. It was one of the it was a national headline at the time. But after that was the rock and wrestling thing. We would not have WrestleMania. We would not have WWE or AEW or possibly any professional wrestling at all left had it not been for the rock and wrestling scenario. You had these people coming in 
like Cindy Lauper and Mr. T, they made that first WrestleMania mean something. Mr. T was one of the biggest TV personalities in the world. He was a badass on his TV show, and he came into WWE, and he was a badass in WWE. That first WrestleMania would not have meant nearly as much had he not been in the main event. I don't care how over Hogan was with the New York crowd. It meant something more because they had been building on MTV, and the celebrities were a key component of that. Later on down the line, you have Donald Trump hosting WrestleMania 4 and WrestleMania 5, and love him or hate him, he gets eyeballs on him even more so nowadays, I guess. And then he was also involved in WrestleMania 23 before everybody hated his guts, or half the country did at least. It moved on down the line from there. You had a football player in Lawrence Taylor, the baddest dude, maybe possibly in the history of the NFL. I mean, he was a mean, mean dude in a time period in the NFL where you could be a mean, mean dude. He went out there trying to hurt people. Well, all of a sudden, he comes over to the WWF, and ends up in the main event of WrestleMania 11. Keep in mind, WrestleMania 11 is when Shawn Michaels is very first starting to get to his first peak. You know, Shawn Michaels kind of has two separate Hall of Fame careers. WrestleMania 11 is about the time where Shawn has proved to everybody that he is the best professional wrestler in the world. But instead of Shawn main eventing, even though he won the Royal Rumble and is in the title match, they have Lawrence Taylor main event WrestleMania. Now, if you're a diehard wrestling fan, that probably pisses you off a little bit. If you're somebody who understands how good it is for the business and how many eyeballs it brought in, you probably love that. I'm as big of a Shawn Michaels fan as you can be, I feel like. And I'm cool with him going on next to last and having Lawrence Taylor come out and be in the last match. It does not bother me at all. I mean, Pamela Anderson and Jenny McCarthy was even involved in his match. They walked him to the ring. So it's a two-sided sword, I guess. Not long after that, another celebrity came in and pretty much just won WWE the Monday Night Wars. And that celebrity was one of the most controversial people on planet Earth, Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson changed the game. Stone Cold was on a heater. He was being built up as the baddest dude in the WWE in all of the world. But no, they brought in the actual baddest man on the planet in Mike Tyson. Mike made that story so much better. The first night, whenever Austin shoves him and McMahon's telling him that he ruined it, that made that match so much more interesting. And then, obviously, the turn that happens at WrestleMania, and he's holding Austin's hand at the end there, starting the Stone Cold Steve Austin era, it's not as big without Mike Tyson there. I know that that probably hurts a lot of wrestling fans' feelings. It's not as big without Tyson being there. As time went on, celebrities kind of came and went. WWE went through phases doing more celebrities and less celebrities. And then they went through the really, 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 really bad time period of celebrity guest host of Raw. I wasn't watching Raw at this time period, thank God. Because if you've read Brian Gortz's book, even he thought it sucked. And he was the one writing the stuff, which I highly recommend reading Brian Gortz's book. If you can find it on Amazon. My wife got it for me for Christmas and I read it in like a couple days. But the current time period that we are living in of celebrities may be the best one yet. You have the number one most streamed artist in the world in Bad Bunny. He's constantly getting eyeballs onto the WWE product. You can't tell me, you cannot sit there and tell me that Bad Bunny being involved in WrestleMania or in the Backlash pay-per-view coming up is not good for wrestling. You can't tell me that it doesn't translate into Peacock subscriptions. I don't know. I'm sure there's a metric out there somewhere. I know WWE has to have it of how much bringing a celebrity in adds revenue to them, even though they're paying them millions of dollars. There's got to be a number that's significantly more than that. So Bad Bunny, he's at the top of the music game. He comes in. Not only does he come in, he works his ass off at the Performance Center, gets good at actually wrestling, puts on a phenomenal match at WrestleMania 37 and continues to show his face around WWE. He doesn't just annex them and be like, oh, you know, thanks, whatever, see you later, bye. No, he continues to come around. Don't get me wrong. Yes, he is getting paid, but you can tell he loves it. At WrestleMania 37 too, just a little side note, when I was at WrestleMania 37, the number one shirt that I seen was the Bad Bunny and Damian Priest shirt. People were wearing that shirt more than any other shirt. You might as well have said that that was the Austin 316 shirt. I mean, like, dude, it was incredible how many people had it on. 
walking around the superstore, walking around the arena. That was the one that got rained out a few times. I guess delayed, I guess you would say. So I was around a lot of people throughout the night because everybody had to get into the concourse area. And they were pretty easy to see shirts because they were white. And, you know, if you're a wrestling fan, you know, most wrestling shirts are black. And you could just see them everywhere with the green and yellow on them. Bad Bunny, Bad Bunny, Bad Bunny. So he brought even a ton of people to WrestleMania itself. Logan Paul. He is currently involved in a feud with one of the WWE's top superstars whenever he came in last year. I I am a fan of Logan Paul. I don't necessarily like the person. I don't know. There's so much bad about him. But at the same time, you wonder how much of it's just an act to where he generates revenue, kind of like Conor McGregor. I'm a fan of Logan Paul being around. One specific reason for that is he's good at wrestling. That matters to me. His his buckshot lariat, I don't know, man. I, I've heard several people say that that's better than Hangman Adam Pages. Is that a step too far? Possibly. But the fact that it's even in consideration, that says something. The dude can work. He can talk, obviously. I mean, he has one of the top podcasts in the world. He means something to wrestling. He's adding to the product. And then my favorite out of the bunch is Pat McAfee. Pat McAfee's another one. He could be doing anything in the world that he wants to do. He's rolling in money from his own podcasts and his shows. He's rolling in money from the college game day thing. He has all this stuff going on, yet he still pops his head in. And hopefully, I want to see him back at the commentary table. I don't want them to just boot um, Wade Barrett off the commentary table. But you can say that Pat McAfee rejuvenated Michael Cole's career. Pat McAfee means so much to wrestling. He's not as big of a name as Bad Bunny and Logan Paul is, and it's not even close, really. He's a big name to football fans, which I'm a huge football fan. So I knew who he was before he came in, but he's another one. He put in time at the Performance Center. Even back before he ever signed with WWE, a long time ago, back whenever he first got into the NFL, he bought a wrestling ring. He's been wanting to do this. He loves the business, and you can see it. You can hear it when he talks. You can see it when he's in the ring. He done a hell of a job at this past WrestleMania. I was really hoping to see him in a match this WrestleMania, but he did tweet out something not so long ago about how the possible sale has been on his mind, the possible sale of WWE to another company. So we'll see what happens with Pat McAfee, but if he never comes back, I think that he's done enough. I think that he will forever get praise from me, and he should from all WWE fans. So I'm going to wrap this up by saying this. If you're not a fan of the celebrities coming in, if you feel like they're taking spots on the WrestleMania card or pay-per-view cards from other wrestlers, my response to that would be, it sucks. It's just part of the game. And if your favorite wrestler is getting booted off of a card because the celebrity's there, the only thing that they need to do is just get over. You're going to have to get over and be on those cards on your own because the celebrity thing is just never going to go away permanently. Like I said earlier, the WWE has went through phases where they try to work celebrities in and out. They normally always come around during WrestleMania season, but get over so much that a celebrity coming in does not even matter to you. It does not affect your job. You're in a secure spot. So I know that that is a very one-sided outlook on it, but I hope the celebrities keep coming around. I hope they keep bringing new eyeballs to the product. It's going to take those things for wrestling to get back to the way that it was in the Attitude Era whenever everybody was watching wrestling. Everybody you knew knew who Stone Cold was. A big reason for that is because of Mike Tyson. So if we want something like that to happen again, it's going to take celebrities coming in. Even on the WCW side of things, they had Dennis Rodman and Karl Malone coming in. It adds to the product. It helps more eyeballs get onto the product. So I don't want to keep hampering on the fact that celebrities are good. And if your opinion on that is different, that's fine. But just know the WWE has to have statistics that prove that celebrities coming in does them financial good or they would move away from it themselves and not spend millions of dollars on these celebrities. So I want to see the wrestling industry grow. In order for that to happen, celebrities have to come in. It is now time for the main event. And this week's main event, we're talking about the Undertaker's WrestleMania streak. And actually, we're going to take it a little bit farther than that and just finish off his entire WrestleMania career. I'm not going to talk too much on each match. I'm not going to talk about the star ratings or the ones that really didn't have much story. I'm not going to talk about the story behind them or the lack thereof. I just want to give you guys, I want to let you see, for one, 
his list of opponents and how impressive they are. And just my feelings towards the streak itself. I want to let you guys see how the streak developed and how it became such a legendary thing. So we'll hop right into it. In The Undertaker's first match at WrestleMania 7, he defeated Jimmy Snuka. At WrestleMania 8, he defeated Jake Roberts. At WrestleMania 9, he defeated John Gonzalez. At WrestleMania 11, he defeated King Kong Bundy. And then the streak starts to pick up just a little bit, where at WrestleMania 12, he defeated Diesel. This one had a pretty good story going into it. I remember we rented this VHS from the drugstore where I live. And it had the clip of when Undertaker had the casket with Diesel in it and Diesel looked inside of it. And that freaked me out as a kid. Left such a permanent impact on me and, you know, probably did some emotional damage that I still carry with me to this day. But that was a cool one. It was right before Diesel left for WCW. At WrestleMania 13, The Undertaker finally main events at WrestleMania and wins the big one against Psycho Sid. It was a huge match for The Undertaker's career. The next match would be considered, in my opinion, the greatest storyline for The Undertaker, where he faced Kane. There's not much that needs to be said about this. Kane and The Undertaker will forever be one of the greatest stories ever told in professional wrestling, or at least up to this point. It got kind of wonky after this, but from the time that Kane debuted until this match happened, man, what a story. It I not only I don't not only did it propel Kane into instant stardom. I think it helped Undertaker change course and find more direction with his character as well at this point. Undertaker, throughout his career, he's always stayed relevant. He's always been a fan favorite. But sometimes his career kind of wavers of importance. Whenever Kane came back in, I think it helped put him back on the right track. The next year at WrestleMania 15 is where The Undertaker's historic run kind of takes a little bit of a hit in a very bad match in a Hell in a Cell against the big boss man. After the match, they hung Big Boss Man, or him and the Brood, I guess. The Brood hung him. Very, very odd. Did not need to see that. Not a cool moment. Very regrettable for the WWE to even book that. At WrestleMania 17, he faced Triple H. A very good match. The first in a trilogy, sort of. I guess technically, yes, but not, you know, not back-to-back. And there was other people in between. At WrestleMania 18, he faces Ric Flair. This is the moment, or at least it's been said, that they even found out that The Undertaker had a WrestleMania streak. The story goes that earlier in the day, Michael Hayes mentions, well, you know, Taker's not ever even been beat at WrestleMania. And the streak was kind of born there. And you can even see after the match, The Undertaker holds up 10 fingers, signifying this is his 10th win at WrestleMania and no losses. Very cool. Very odd the way that they found out about it. But still really cool. And it's crazy to think, you know, with Goldberg's streak, his undefeated streak, you know that that was a planned thing. Most streaks are planned. This one wasn't even planned. It just happened by happenstance. So very cool. The next year, again, just, uh, you know, a black eye on the list was whenever he faced Big Show and A-Train. Nathan Jones was supposed to be his partner going into this. Apparently something was going on with that. So it just became a handicap match. But he picked up the win. Whatever, we'll skip past it. WrestleMania 20, the first uh, the first match that I was incredibly interested in in the Undertaker's streak. He came back as the dead man to face Kane. A few months earlier, Kane had buried the Undertaker alive and thought he killed him for good. But no, the Undertaker shows back up. He's the dead man again, and he's kicking ass again. And I just thought it was incredible. His 13th victory at WrestleMania was against Randy Orton at WrestleMania 21. This, apparently, according to Bruce Pritchard, was the first time that they ever thought about breaking the streak. They thought Randy was a great, young, up-and-comer, and that he needed to be the guy that broke the streak. Now, it wasn't discussed for long, and, of course, Undertaker picks up the victory here. But I thought that this story was really good. And I know I said I wasn't going to get to the stories too much, but I remember I was a big SmackDown kid. I loved SmackDown when I was growing up. and Randy Orton, during this phase of his career, was great. His facial expressions, especially throughout the course of this, he would get those big, wide-open eyes when The Undertaker would come out, and you would just see the fear all over him. I thought it was incredible. I thought Randy Orton done a good job. If he would have been the one to break the streak, it wouldn't have meant as much because it wasn't, you know, 21, but still, I think it would have been cool. 
The next match on the list is at WrestleMania 22 versus Mark Henry. This was the first WrestleMania I ever watched live on pay-per-view. And this one wasn't spectacular. It was cool because it had the casket stipulation. It was a casket match. Maybe I just wasn't old enough to be super invested in the storyline, but he's another one that can tell a great story. So it's not necessarily, again, it's not like a black eye like the A-Train and Big Show, but it's not great. It's not, you know, in the top five of this streak or anything like that, but it was what it was. At WrestleMania 23, The Undertaker defeats Batista for the World Heavyweight Championship. I thought it was awesome. Big Batista guy at the time. Thought it was a pretty decent match. And the streak moved to 15-0. At the next WrestleMania, he defeated Edge. And, I mean, come on. You know these guys are going to have a pretty good match, at least. So, him and Edge squared away at WrestleMania 24. It's overlooked because that was the night that Ric Flair's career ended. And this was the night that Zack Ryder got chokeslammed by The Undertaker, I think, in that match, if I'm remembering correctly. So, shouts out to Zack Ryder, a.k.a. Matt Cardona. The next match on the list is undoubtedly the most important match on the streak because it is the best match in the history of the streak. And it is at WrestleMania 25 against Shawn Michaels. There's not much to say about this match that hasn't already been said. It is a five-star, don't care what Dave Meltzer says, instant classic. The next year, they try to do it again. This match has quite a bit more story because Shawn Michaels' career is on the line. Career versus streak against Shawn Michaels. Again, another five-star match. If the last one was, the last one should have been five and a quarter. We'll say that, and this is five. I don't think it's as good, but I do think it's great. I think that it's top-tier wrestling at its finest. But Shawn Michaels' career comes to an end, and the Undertaker's streak continues to grow. Then, at WrestleMania 27, Triple H and the Undertaker square off in a no-holds-barred match where the Undertaker wins. At WrestleMania 28, they go at it for a third time in a Hell in a Cell, the end of an era. This match was super cool to me. This was my, like I said in past podcasts, WrestleMania 28 was the first WrestleMania where I had started watching wrestling again. And this was a signature from my childhood. So it was really cool for it to be the first one I watch again and then to see the guys that I grew up on. And it for to, it was a hell of a match. I thought that the match was great. Again, it's not as good as the last two, you know, the Shawn Michaels matches or nothing like that, but it's a great match. So I thought it was cool to see them all standing at the top of the ramp at the end. Apparently, Hunter has Taker's gloves and hat and a few things from that match hanging in his office. That just goes to show you what it means to Triple H, and he's one of the greatest to ever do it. So that tells you a little bit about the match. The next match, I'm a certified CM Punk hater. And even I will admit the story to this match was phenomenal, that it was a good match. I know Punk feels slighted because he feels like he should have been in the main event at this pay-per-view. But when you're wrestling The Undertaker, you are in the main event. I don't care if you go on last. So they had a good rivalry leading up to it with CM Punk completely crapping all over Paul Bearer, who had just passed away. I thought it was a great story. But The Undertaker streak goes to 21-0. But then... At WrestleMania 30, we see the streak come to an end when The Undertaker was defeated by Brock Lesnar. As far as builds to a WrestleMania match goes, in this era where builds are really important and they put a lot of effort into building into WrestleMania matches, this build outright completely sucked. I was not interested in this match at all, and which is crazy because... As this podcast goes along, you will find out how much I love The Undertaker and how much I love Brock Lesnar. I don't know, man. The build was awful. The match wasn't very good. Whenever this was the start of the WWE Network, and I had a friend text me. He had some little kids. He had like a three-year-old at the time. And he was like, hey, you know, my little boy's into watching wrestling. Do you want to bring your PlayStation over and we'll watch the, the WrestleMania on the WWE Network? And I was like, sure, no problem. We'll do that for sure. So his wife cooked for us, and we watched WrestleMania together. And when this match came on, I was like, all right, whatever. I'll play with the kids. I'll eat. I'm not paying much attention to it. I'll look up, and I notice that the match is kind of dwindling down. And then out of nowhere, or at least I felt like at the time, Brock Lesnar picks up the win. And I was like, well, that had to be a mess up. The Undertaker doesn't lose at WrestleMania. They immediately show the 21-1, and 
I think everybody had the same reaction to this. Once we all saw the graphic, we realized, well, that was pretty fast. That couldn't have been an accident if they had that ready that fast. Brock Lesnar against the streak. I went back and watched the match later that night. Like, I couldn't stand it. I had to go back and watch the match again just to see, like, what the hell happened? And, I mean, Taker was hurt in the match, but they still wrestled a pretty good match, I thought. And still think to this day, I go back and watch WrestleMania probably at least once a year. And I thought they had a decent match, all things considered. I think that Brock Lesnar was the right guy to end the streak. I think that he was the dude to do it because... A lot of people say, well, Brock didn't need it. Brock's career was already, you know, at the top. He was already a main eventer. He couldn't have got any bigger. I disagree with that completely. I think that this took Brock into that next level of WWE star. I think that this match made Brock untouchable. I think that this match was the match that made Brock Lesnar be able to elevate guys like Seth Rollins, like Roman Reigns. Like he's he's in a match. Brock Lesnar is going to be in a match this year against Omos. There's one reason for that match, and that is so that Omos can get elevated by Brock Lesnar. Even in a loss, Omos will get elevated by Brock Lesnar. That all happens because Brock Lesnar beats The Undertaker at WrestleMania. Paul Heyman carried this into the 21 or the 1 and 21 and 1 for years, it felt like. I think it's a good thing. We can argue until we're blue in the face about this, but I think that Brock Lesnar was the guy to beat The Undertaker. The next one was against Bray Wyatt at WrestleMania 31. This one wasn't incredible. I would actually say it's probably almost bad, but it was in the daytime. I think that that has a lot to do with my opinion on the match, but you could have left this one off the list for me, especially considering that Taker had just lost the year before. Whenever you, the next year you get, you know, Bray Wyatt facing him and you think in the back of your head, well, he could have been the guy. You know, Bray Wyatt could have been the guy to break the streak. And then Bray Wyatt would have never gotten fired a few years ago and he would be on top of the company. You know, he would be world champion for years and years and years or whatever. Whatever your thoughts on it are, it makes it hard to watch the match, I think. The next year, WrestleMania 32, the first WrestleMania that I was in the building for, I got to see The Undertaker take on Shane McMahon. The match was, eh, it was okay. There were some cool spots. Shane jumping off the top of the Hell in the Cell down the announcer's table was super cool. It just kind of was what it was. It felt like just a way to get The Undertaker on the WrestleMania card, especially considering it was a decently weak WrestleMania going in. I feel like it turned out to be a great WrestleMania. But it was a way to get both these guys on the card, have a big stipulation. So it was cool. The next match was a match that I thought was the end of The Undertaker's career whenever he faced off against Roman Reigns in Orlando at WrestleMania 33. The Undertaker takes his second loss in his WrestleMania career against Roman Reigns. Bad, bad match. Undertaker was injured. His hips were just awful during this match. Roman hadn't gotten to the point that he's at now where he can just straight up carry anybody in the ring. Roman Reigns is one of the best workers in the world right now. He was not at this time. Roman was just a high spot guy, man. You're waiting for the spear. You're waiting for the Superman punch. And then he does it 10 times and then whatever, you go home. So, Undertaker being banged up at this time period was just bad. So, I don't know. The match wasn't great, but it is what it is. After the match, me and a few thousand grown men shed a few tears as we thought the Undertaker was running off into the sunset one last time here. The next year, at WrestleMania 34, the build-up to this match was John Cena wanted a match with the Undertaker. The Undertaker says no. Cena says, well, I'll just go watch as a fan, and if he shows up, he shows up, and we'll wrestle then. Cena starts the night. In the crowd, waiting on The Undertaker. After the second match, which was Charlotte and Oscar, if I remember correctly, a ref comes down, tells Cena, hey, he's here. Then we get a straight-up squash match. The Undertaker just destroys John Cena. I don't even think John Cena got one offensive move in this match. It just kind of is what it is. It's not, oh, it's not a five-star classic. It's not this. It's not that. It told a good story. It was a good match to have at WrestleMania. Undertaker's final match at WrestleMania was against AJ Styles in a cinematic boneyard match. This match means a lot to me as a fan. It is the end of an era. This match is truly the end of an era. Not just, oh, it's the end of an era, and then they both wrestle for 10 more years. No, this one was the end for The Undertaker. And I think that AJ Styles was a great opponent for that. AJ Styles, world-renowned. Some people would tell you he's the greatest worker of all time. 
And then they put him in a match where he doesn't wrestle in a wrestling ring. And it's spectacular. The The involvement of Gallows and Anderson is, in this cinematic match was cool. And then in the end, we see The Undertaker take off on his motorcycle and ride off to never be seen from at WrestleMania again. Man, it was super cool. It made the whole not having WrestleMania because of COVID thing feel a lot better. I mean, I guess technically there was WrestleMania, but I wasn't there because COVID happened. It made it feel a lot better. And I think that AJ Styles was a good one to be the last guy. It sucks that The Undertaker's done. You know, more and more guys from my childhood are riding off, man. It's looking like this year's WrestleMania may be Cena's last from the way that he talks. There's not many left. Ray could be his last one. So I'm trying to appreciate these guys while they're still around. And uh, the Undertaker's straight, man. It'll never be matched again. It shouldn't be matched again. I think the fans are too smart for you to do something like this nowadays. And again, the WWE didn't even know. Nobody had any clue that he was developing a streak. So now if you've done a streak, it would be on purpose. It would absolutely, people would just automatically recognize. If a guy's 2-0 and or a girl's 2-0 and at WrestleMania, somebody's going to go, oh my gosh, they're undefeated. You know, they're undefeated. So it just can't happen nowadays. If they do decide to do it, somebody's going to have to be able to wrestle 21 WrestleManias in a row to get to the Undertaker's streak. I just, I mean, the likelihood of even something like that happening is just not very high. You're going to have to find somebody straight out of high school or straight out of college, get them in the PC, get them to the main roster, let them win for the next 21 years. It's just not likely. We'll never see anything like it again. It was a cool moment in time to live for. I'm glad that I got to experience a lot of it. I'm glad that I got to watch most of this streak happen. And again, I don't think that anybody is ever going to touch it again, nor do they need to. But that's the end of the episode this week, guys. I'm so excited. If you've made it to this point, I really appreciate it. Also, if you've made it to this point, you probably are already doing this. But go follow me on all social media. I'm on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. And of course, if you're listening to this, you're probably already on Spotify, Apple, or whatever your favorite podcast platforms are. But just go find me. Follow me. Download my episodes. It helps me more than you will ever know. It doesn't cost you a penny. And it helps me out immensely, guys. I appreciate you. So what about wrestling?